things happen so fast nowadays that we quickly forget topics that have been on everybody's mind because new crises arise all the time. But it wasn't more than three and a half years ago that the Me Too disclosures and subsequent movement shook the world, or at least the so-called Western world. Now, the relationship between the sexes is a sensitive matter that creates emotions. Question is, what was the Me Too lesson? Did we get the whole picture? Are we even capable of discussing sexuality the way we discuss social and political matters? Welcome to Mind the Shift. I am Anders Bolling. My guest today is Bettina Arndt, an Australian sex therapist, journalist, writer of best-selling books, influencer, activist, and combative, or combative, I don't know how to pronounce that word, debater of feminism and the rights of women and men. And since about the event of Me Too, she has dedicated much of her time focused uh, on the rights of the latter gender, men. Welcome to the show, Bettina. And it's very nice to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. I hope I was correct in uh, describing your, um, uh, your um, uh, resume there. <laughs> yeah, well, look, I haven't been a sex therapist for over 40 years. It was part of my ancient history. Um, okay, but you started out that way. I started out that way. I started out as one of Australia's first sex therapists, and that was my sex was what made me famous in my in my yeah. youth. <laughs> and Wonderful. I became I became probably the first person to really speak out in Australia about sex and and to make a career, particularly out of um, working in the media, trying to educate yeah. Australians about sex. And um, which was, that was uh, a, necessary was at that time, perhaps. Long time ago, um, but it was you know it was, it was very much a time when sex had been a taboo topic, yeah. and people were very hungry for information, and it was a great start to the career, I believe me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for yeah, how many years? Very exciting. Did you that? In, I did it for about ten years, pretty 10 much. Years, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then I had enough. There's a limit to how much sex anyone can take. <laughs> <laughs> You mean uh, in practical life or in, oh, in, well, in, in, in theory? Maybe both, maybe. No, but there's certainly a limit to. I was publishing a little sex education magazine yeah. through most of that period, an adult sex education magazine. And, you know, it was very much a, a backyard operation. We did it all from a little shed, literally in the back of our house. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yet it had a very loyal, big following of people who were very keen, keen on receiving more information about sex. And we had a, a big um, part of the magazine was a letters column answering people's queries. And people had nowhere to go for advice about sex. And we brought together a team of experts. And so we did all that. And it was a terribly exciting thing to be part of that new wave mm. of information that had been previously forbidden and, and not to people and people couldn't access them. There was really so uh, much happening. I was a 22-year-old. You know, I, I was a baby. You know, I was out there. I'd, I'd actually done research on teaching women to reach orgasm. I did a master of clinical psychology and uh, based around this research of, of, of talking to women about sex. And, uh, and I was very keen to spread the word. And one of the reasons I got involved with the media was I decided it was 
terribly tedious to sit with individual women saying, you know, this is your body, this is your clitoris, this is, you know, this is what you should know. Mm. Uh, and it's much more efficient to go on television and say, this is your clitoris. You know? Yeah, and, you would reach so many, more, so many more people yeah. at the same time, of course. And, well, it's yeah. just extraordinary. I mean, it was a yeah. wonderful thing. Um, and I got in no end of trouble. I was banned from um, live television and, and radio for two years when the why we had a we had a censorship body essentially making decisions about what was appropriate behavior and they never said what okay. i said was you know they never named what i said that was inappropriate but clearly you know they blushed a little bit too much okay <laughs> they, so we, it was because it was just, was graphic graphic language or whatever no, not, no no never not particularly language but you no. know i would talk my but research actually topic. involved teaching women to masturbate in order to reach mm -hmm. orgasm for the first time and even mm -hmm. that sort of topic was some sort of thing you couldn't talk about uh, like what you just said wouldn't have been possible to say in australian television well i, I was saying it but that's what got yeah. me banned okay years. i mean today it's no i mean you can say nothing. that in, in the nothing. news yes yeah although yeah. interestingly i look back and i think some of the things i talked about then you wouldn't be allowed to talk about in australia now still not and that is yeah, I think we've we've come through that era of openness into a much more repressive era, particularly, I don't know whether mm -hmm. it's true across the world and whether it's true in Sweden, but, um, and I see a lot of that is due to the influence of the feminist movement, which is pretty, not terribly keen, particularly on male sexuality. <laughs> mm. um, and that's been one of my battles for decades, I suppose, this sort of idea yes. that we're going a, to come back very, to that, of course. Yeah. yeah, we'll come back to that. But that, so, I mean, I, I think there are things I used to gale. I had a, my own talkback radio program for uh, a couple of years in Sydney, and there were things I talked about then that you can never talk about now. Hmm. Like hmm. such, such oh, as. Oh, well, I, I particularly, I, this was, a, it was very funny, actually. It was an evening, it was six o'clock at night. And people tell me, used to tell me whole busloads of cricketers or footballers would s sit in the bus on the way home from their, from their match and not want to get out of the bus because they were listening to my radio program. Oh, really? <laughs> that was very funny. That's cool. Uh, but, you know, I would talk about whatever people rang in about and I would talk about orgasms and ejaculation or whatever whatever yeah, people yeah, inter yeah. interested in yeah. but uh, you wouldn't be allowed to do that at six o'clock at night now oh really hmm. mm. interesting we have so much to cover today bettina yeah. uh, i mean gender equality sexuality as you're talking about a little bit now feminism and all that so um i think i was thinking we should maybe s start with uh, what is happening right now or what you are focusing yeah. on right now you quit journalism a few years ago, as far as, far as I understand, to, to campaign in different ways for um, unfairly treated men's rights. And you recently launched a campaign called the Mothers of Sons. Is that right? Yeah, I'm involved with it. Yeah, yeah and you also pursue a fight against so-called kangaroo courts set up at universities in Australia to subject men accused of rape to a speedy judicial process. Can you tell us more about this campaign and, and this fight of yours? Um, well, the, the, the kangaroo court campaign is about the fact that, our, that activists have bullied our universities into getting involved, usurping criminal law, getting involved in the business of making decisions about sexual assault, investigating allegations of sexual assault, of rape, um, and then punishing people, but usually men, of course, who they 
deemed guilty. And this is these are anonymous groups of university officials, no qualifications, no no supervision. Um, they're, and they're making decisions on a much lower standard of proof than is required under criminal law, the balance of probabilities. Um, they don't allow these young men access to lawyers. They deny them all the normal legal rights they would have in a, in a proper uh, criminal justice system. And this has all happened as a result of, of feminist campaigning. And a few years ago, I started being contacted by young men in that situation and helping them ward off these committees. These committees have no right to be there. They have no proper authority to make the sort of decisions they're making. Um, I had a, a young man who was doing a PhD um, contact me and he he had had a demand from a committee and he had to, he couldn't even work out which girl had been making that made this accusation about him and then and so we got involved in trying to get proper details of this accusation and I got a criminal lawyer to help him write to the university saying he was, had no intention of appearing before this committee. What authority did they have to demand this? And, and that was the first. And I've had a whole string of cases like that. And I now have a group of lawyers helping me with it. And so a couple of years ago, I decided to go out on university campuses because no one knows this is happening. I mean, it's very rarely spoken about in Australia. And I started to speak on university campuses, which is quite an extraordinary experience because, you know, the activists tried terribly hard to stop me. Uh, I mean, the first university where I tried this, they said, no, I wasn't allowed to give my speech because it conflicted with the values of the university. And I got the press to put some pressure on them. And then they backed off and they allowed me to speak. But the you know, we had all these protesters bashing on the windows and trying to mm. s drown me out. And and then even more exciting, I had a talk at Sydney University where they needed the riot squad. You know, the elite police group had to come in and and drag and and ensure that I could speak by removing these protesters who were blocking entry to the venue. Um, and that was incredibly ex exciting event, which got enormous. I mean, I was in many ways delighted. They absolutely played into my hands because it, enormous publicity. The government then instituted an inquiry into free speech on campus because this was this tiny minority group imposing their will about who was allowed to speak on their campus. Um, and most people thought that was pretty outrageous. And mm. it actually led to the government uh, introducing new uh, legislation, new laws to control what uh, free speech on campus. So I, I see that mm -hmm. as a tiny part of my legacy. If I yeah. achieve nothing else, um, but I don't that was part of it. How, how did the so-called kangaroo courts come about? Who, who were driving, pushing for this? And uh, why did it happen in the first place? Well, I don't know whether you remember... Um, it all started really in America under Joe Biden, funnily enough. He, Joe Biden, as vice president in the Obama administration, uh, openly said he wanted to use the universities, the university campuses, to change the sexual culture of America. And he mm -hmm. openly stated that. And he, so he was the main driving force behind the Obama administration requiring all publicly funded universities um, to introduce tribunals to adjudicate sexual assault on, and, and sexual harassment as well on, um, on campuses. Same sort of thing, you know, no legal protection for the accused. There's been 
literally hundreds of cases in America where students have taken, accused students have taken universities, taken legal action against universities for failure to protect their legal rights. And they're winning consistently. Most of these cases, uh, the, it's the families, the accused young men are winning against the universities. And there's this whole history behind that. And lo and behold, I could see it starting in Australia. It started with this whole campaign, starting with this idea that there's a rape crisis on our campus mm. and they manufactured statistics. And then they got, we have a... Who are uh, they? Who are they? The, the feminist activists. Absolutely okay. feminist activists, openly stating. And they. it's very interesting. There's documentation showing they believe that our criminal justice system fails rape victims, that they don't get enough convictions, particularly in these cases involving young people. So it's a date rape, it's a boyfriend-girlfriend situation, and the juries, most of our cases end up before juries, and they don't know who to believe when they get he said, she said evidence. Mm. And they, the rape penalties are very high. We've got you know, seven, 10-year sentences potentially that these boys are facing and juries tend not to convict young men in that circumstance when when they can't work out, you know, what the evidence is actually proving, mm. which is totally reasonable, I would say. Yes, yes, But the feminists yeah. don't think that's reasonable and they want more convictions and they openly state that. The, the goal of this campus kangaroo courts is to get more rape convictions by mm. lowering the standard of proof. And that's exactly what they did in America. And that's what they're doing here. And I think that's an absolute outrage. Mm. And we've had this ongoing battle for the last few years. We won a major legal victory where um, in one case, uh, in one state, um, the judge ruled that the universities had no right to make these sort of decisions, no right to steal. They're stealing young men's degrees. Mm. I mean, here's someone who spent, what, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars on a degree, years of their life, and the university has taken it upon themselves to just steal that from them, to mm. refuse to give them their degrees. It's just mm. extraordinary. But um, what happens if they're sentenced by these, these special tribunals, these kangaroo courts, are they, they have to go to an ordinary uh, court after court, that yeah. or criminal well, court. Yes, so, I mean, they're not sentenced the to prison in, in, at the university campuses. No, that's they're not, not sentenced what... to prison because the only penalties they've got is to disrupt their education. Okay, yeah, uh, that's bad enough. And, that and it's, look, it's, a, it's a game we're playing because the universities are claiming they're sending them all to the criminal courts first. Um, but in the meantime, they have to protect the female student. So I had a young man in the middle of the COVID crisis this year, um, a pharmacy student. He was in his final uh, months of his you know, four-year degree, and the university refused him to, because when the accusation was made, mm. it was referred to a criminal court, but the university took it upon themselves to ban him from going to campus until that criminal hearing, which has actually not happened yet. It's not, it's going to happen in a few months' time. And we had to try to find a, he had a compulsory part of his course. He had to be on campus, you know, some sort of practical work, and they refused to let him on campus. We got the lawyers. We found actually a special um, provision whereby the 
we found that the, the, these investigations are not supposed to disrupt their educational achievement. And so we used that. Anyway, we're, it's this endless maneuvering we are, our, my campus lawyers are using to try mm. to have, you know, introduce some measure of justice for these young men. Mm. Um, anyway, so that's where we are. But it's made me enemy number one in Australia <laughs> for a certain, and in particular for one woman, interestingly, who has been, she was one of the main players in this group called End Rape on Campus, and I'm undermining her work. And she's been publishing article after article defaming me and mm. manipulating, presenting misinformation. And Have you been able had, to, to debunk, I mean, to... To, to, uh, to destroy write... my reputation. She's been on... Twitter calling for people to make complaints saying I misrepresent my qualifications. Mm. Uh, I'm not really a psychologist. It's, it's a complicated story. I'm not registered as a psychologist because actually, you know, I only worked as a therapist for about six months and then I, the rest of my life I worked in the media. So mm. uh, anyway, she, so she, it's been this ongoing, it's like an ultimate catfight between this young activist and this old grandma, which is pretty funny. <laughs> yes. uh, but she took me out last year because I was stupid enough to accept an award from our government, which is called mm. an honours award. And it, very provocatively, I suppose, we framed it in terms of my work for men and it, work for achieving gender equity through advocacy for men. And of course, that inflamed the feminists, and they absolutely showed their strength. They mm. recruited two attorney general, who are the chief legal officers for two states, that and the Australian Senate to demand my award be rescinded. They released all sorts of misinformation. If you go to my wiki page, they captured my wiki page a year yes, ago. They and activists tend to do those things with people they don't all like. All this, this rubbish. If anyone's interested in this story, on my website, I've got the true story. But if you Google yes, it's, my it's name, the first thing you see when you get to your website, I think. It's bettinaart.com. It's, yeah. You can see that you got your award finally. I got my award, but I go yeah. through who was out to get me and why yeah. and the evidence for it. Because if you Google my name, you'll find innumerable articles defaming me, mis mm. misrepresenting. I've had a 45-year career in the media. I've written hundreds of articles. It's very easy to take a, a quote from here and a point from there and muddle them all up and misrepresent them and that's what they've yes. done on it's a bit and scary. I've, made hundred, I've made hundreds of vi youtube videos you'll learn this and if you get uh and then they can use a sentence from here and a bit from there and put them all together and make you look appalling and that's what, exactly what they've done yes and, and i feel my, my life with really provocative topics so it's very easy to do that you know yes yes uh, you're brave <laughs> so this mothers of sons Polish. campaign is is uh, based on the same uh thing is it it's, it's also about well mothers of sons i mean i started uh, working i thought accused young young men yeah well when i was under attack when they were trying to cancel me i thought it'd be better to work with a group of women and i uh pulled together some of the mothers i knew who've had sons who've been falsely accused of rape of you know domestic violence and sons who've been through dreadful ordeals in what i regard mm. as a really as a criminal justice system now firmly tilted in favour of, you know, believe the victim justice, believe mm. women and not believe men. And we have, you know, 20 mothers who came together initially 
with incredible stories about what's happened to their sons, really heartbreaking stories. I mean, like a, a mother whose son was in a battle with a rather violent woman and eventually our family court ruled that the father should look after this child, have major care of this child. They told the mother who promptly killed this this, this little girl, a toddler, um, killed this woman's granddaughter. And I mean, that's a, you know, obviously a very extreme example. Yeah. Uh, but we've had, you know, so we've got a number of examples like that, but also lots of examples just simply of lots and lots of grandmothers who never see their grandchildren because the ex-spouse, the, you know, the man's wife, just forbids any contact with the husband, with you know, her former husband, um, and with the grandparents. And mm. I'm sure in Sweden, across the world, there are grandparents who just never see their grandchildren because of this sort of indictiveness. And the, the courts, well, certainly in Australia, the courts are very bad at enforcing orders to require children to see their fathers and to see their grand paternal grandparents hmm. our, our family court is a joke when it comes to enforcing orders to protect men's rights it's all women can get away with anything women can move from one end of the country to the other they I mean, what's happened in recent years is false allegations have become the weapon of choice in our family court system so if you if you ring up the police and say my partner has physically abused me the police are required to come and remove that man from the home with no evidence, no no investigation, nothing. Men mm. that can leave their home and not see their children for two years. I mean, it's the most extraordinary. Yeah. Um, well, that's the other side of the story, of course, and because it's very different from what we read about in the in in the media for the most part. I mean, um, women who are actually being harassed and and. Uh, yeah. And tormented by by their ex husbands and ex partners, yeah. which is happening, of course, all the time. Of course, so, it's happening. I mean, and yes. it came from a very important place. We had to protect women from violent men. I mean, it was really important. These rules were set up, and we did more because you know police didn't used to intervene in these domestic cases, and we and it was extremely important. We we started changing the law to ensure that sort of protection, but it's absolutely being misused i don't know about your situation but it's certainly the case here in america and britain where um it's there's a very what i would call the domestic violence industry it's become a huge cash cow for the feminists that's how they get most of their funding we've spent three billion dollars in australia on domestic violence funding which is all about um you know said I mean, setting up refuges for women, which is fine if they're genuine refuges, but not a single refuge in the whole of Australia for men who are dealing with violent wives and and protecting children from violent mothers. There's nowhere for men to go in Australia. And yet our official statistics show at least a third of the victims of violence are male. We know this. And yes. It's very that's interesting. Just, I read I read what you wrote yeah. about that, and that's really truly yeah. interesting figures. Yeah. Uh, you wrote the book Men Too. Uh, came out in 2018, was it? Two and a half yeah, years a couple, ago. Yeah, a couple of years ago. It was just really yeah. a collection of my writing over the last few decades. 
Okay. Um, it wasn't. Um, but what, what been, was it? Did you decide to write it or, or to compile it as a reaction to the it, Compile it. I put yeah. brought together most of my major pieces I'd written about what's happening to men in this culture. Mm. Our increasingly mm. anti-male culture, and I mean, I started to. I mean, I started off as a feminist, firmly believing that women were disadvantaged in a whole range of areas in our lives. But I watched that change and I celebrated that change. I mean, women, it was so exciting to see choices opening up for women and women getting protections in key areas, you know, not only sexual assault, but, you know, I mean, marital rape and all sorts of areas where we, we hadn't looked carefully at the bit business of providing women with safe environments. Um, and that was a wonderful thing. And women flooding into our universities and doing really well. But then, I mean, I think we achieved most of the goals I had for women by the, the sort of certainly by the 1980s. And from then on, it's been about advantaging women at the expense of men and very deliberately doing that. Um, Shameless. Why do you think that's, that happened? Why do you think that happened in the I mean, why did it go that far in your view? Oh, I think I think fourth wave feminists, um, a lot of them are pretty anti-male. They, I mean, I, I once they're, they're keen on getting vengeance. Some of them for what they see as the imbalance in past history. Uh, where that men, uh, women were badly treated historically, and we—it's now it's our time. I once I used to write a lot about boys' education. Um, that was one of my pet subjects, probably 20 years ago, and and the fact that uh, boys—you know—there came a point where boys were really struggling, and our education system was full of boys dropping out and boys not engaging in education and um, and being disruptive and filling the classes of remedial reading or whatever it was. And lots and lots of parents were noticing this. And which, I mean, it's fantastic to have women winning, girls winning all the prizes, but not when the boys are absolutely filling the bottom end. I mean, mm. some of those boys are not achieving their potential. Um, so I wrote about that and I got this really wonderful letter, which I must one day get framed, um, <laughs> abusing me and saying, you know, my daughter must be ashamed of having such a mother. And we, you know, it's only our due to that women should be um, dominant, absolutely dominant education to make up for all those women who suffered in the past. You know, it was about vengeance. It was the most extraordinary yeah. letter. So we should take responsibility for the for the thousands of generations behind us. Absolutely. Every and, and, you know, of course, that's all really arguable, too. I mean, if you look up through past history, men and women had very difficult lives. Of course. Uh, and both men and women. And it, and yeah. it was a, a family unit who suffered together. Men, mm. men and women living very short lives and, mm. you know, losing children dying very young and suffering ill health and men were working extremely hard as did women i mean no one was having a great time if you got into the, below the, the it's the now that we have the time to reflect reflect upon this whole thing we, the people yeah. didn't even have time to, ref, to 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 think about it and the notion of male yeah, even now of course the notion of male privilege is such a joke not much privilege involved in being a very um poor white men in any of our country a white male mm. who's you know, living a, 
in the morning. Who are who are the homeless? I'm sure it's the same applies in Sweden as it mm. does here. The, the mm. men who are eking out an existence, living in caravan parks and filling the boarding houses and sleeping rough on the trees on the streets. They're all men. Hard. I mean, they're, they're mainly, now making not, a, not all of them, but mainly yes. No. Mm. Oh, they're making a huge fuss because we're seeing more women and they say, you know, X hundred percent more increase in women. That's in increased for virtually zero, mm -hmm. whereas it's still in Australia, 70% of men are the ones sleeping rough on our streets, you know. All those areas. Six, we, have a, we have a gender neutral national suicide policy and yet six out of the eight people who kill themselves every day in Australia are male and are... Uh, Health bureaucrats refuse to do proper research finding out why men are killing themselves. And we actually know why men are killing themselves. A lot of those men are really at risk because of the consequences of divorce and the hideous business of dealing with a biased family court system which allows women to remove their children and to make false accusations. And there are no consequences for the, for the women for doing that sort of thing. Mm. The issue of domestic violence that you were touching upon briefly here is, of course, a very sensitive matter. Yeah. Um, you, you point out, when I read the material that you sent me, you point out that statistics are skewed to the detriment of men here when you look at it. According to Australian statistics, if you look closer at it, you can see that an equal percentage of children experience violence from the mother as from the father. And also very interesting studies show that uh, the woman in a couple is the perpetrator just as often as the man if and we man is and we're talking about pushing slapping throwing things and and, and and that kind of thing but men of course don't report as often as women do and men don't get hurt as often as women do no. so uh, are, are we are we here talking about physical violence all the time or, or maybe are we talking about perhaps psychological violence well, hurting if we if we start, start I mean, because I, just, sorry, just let me on, finish yeah, that. Just, yeah. Uh, what about injuries that you see, hospital cases, and also the fact that the the proportion of killers uh, is predominantly male. I mean, the, the, the male proportion of killers is sure. is, is much much bigger of than, it is than predominantly male. Well, we'll talk about the physical violence first. Um, yes. You mentioned Australian research. There was actually a huge. Uh, American study and it involves I think it involves some experts from Britain as well but they had seven they went through 1700 peer-reviewed papers and the overwhelming evidence is that most violence is two-way violence involving women as well as men and uh, you mentioned I mean the issue is what what are you asking are you if you ask what who is a victim of violence most men won't say I'm a victim men are very reluctant to see themselves as victims um, but if you go out and ask who's perpetrated violence, mm. you get that's where you get large numbers of women acknowledging their perpetrators. There was a famous study in New Zealand. They were doing, they had a thing called the Christchurch Longitudinal Study, which was absolutely world leading longitudinal research following families through for decades after decade. And they went out to look at this. And, and instead of asking who's victim of violence, they started asking, who starts the violence? Who have you ever hit your partner? And they found, much to their astonishment, they found more women than men acknowledging they'd started. Super interesting. Yeah. And though they, of course, were absolutely jumped on those researchers. 
And I tried to get hold of one of those researchers when I was writing about this just a few years ago, yeah. um, asking her about this research she did 20 years ago. And she said she won't talk about it anymore. I mean, they research, people who do proper, honest research in this area have their grants threatened. They have, have had death threats. I mean, there's an enormous from, pressure on them. From to, whom? From feminists? From, from feminists. From feminist researchers who are promoting this idea that it's all violent men, that there's no real problem with violent women, um, and they, you know, that women need all the funding to protect them. And it's a. Do you know about a woman called? There's a woman, famous woman called Erin Pizzi, who's a British, fabulous story. Erin Pizzi, who's now in her 80s, I think. Um, she was the first woman to ever set up a refuge for women in 1970-something, early 1970s in Britain. And she set up this refuge, and much to her surprise, she found she was had a real problem with violent women, women who were abusive to other women, hitting other women and hitting their children. And she started to speak out about this. She had death threats from the feminists. They killed her dog, literally. Mm. Uh, and the police advised her to leave the country. And for a while, she moved out of Britain. Um, I mean, and Erin Pissy is an extraordinarily brave woman and has been speaking out for 40 years about what she calls the 40 years of lies about domestic violence. And mm. she absolutely spells it out that she watched as the women's movement, um, you know, initially had a, was met with a huge wave of enthusiasm and everyone signed up and everyone sent in money. And then things started to wane a little bit. And and Erin Pizzi says that there was a very deliberate decision to pick on domestic violence as the cash cow because mm -hmm. it's untouchable. You know, it, you cannot critique the funding for domestic violence without running into an awful lot of criticism from men and women. I mean, men are, yes. are notoriously protective of women, now, which is a wonderful mm -hmm. thing. And mm -hmm. they like the idea of supporting, you know, of taking, of doing something about men who are violent towards women, everyone gets on board this cause. And that's been the major source of funding for feminism around the world in the last two decades. And that's what Erin Pizzi points out. And she's been extremely unpopular with the feminists ever since. Yeah, I can understand that. Fascinating. Well, this thing that if research is... Uh, ask the question, who is the perpetrator rather than who is the victim? You get very different kinds of answers than normally. That's, that's uh, really sorry, interesting. Can I, sorry, and so I just mentioned the, the homicide yeah. thing. It's, of course it's true that you've got bigger men and if once the violence starts, women are more at risk of serious injury or death. Mm -hmm. um, and that all the statistics everywhere show that and there's no questioning that. But if we're looking at family violence, of course, children are more at risk from violence from their mothers. They're more likely to be murdered by their mothers. They're mm -hmm. more likely to be emotionally abused by their <laughs> mothers. And that those statistics are invariably buried. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's very careful the way this is all framed so that they leave out truths, that, that inconvenient truths that they don't want to, to, to dilute that narrative. Yeah. And it's the most amazing thing. I had a, there was a friend of mine who was a relationship counsellor in one of our big relationship organisations who lost his job through posting my article where I pulled together all the proper statistics and research on domestic violence. He posted that on his private Facebook page 
And this government-funded um, relationship counselling organisation fired him or forced mm. him out of his job because they proudly said they promote a feminist domestic violence policy which only focuses on violence against women. They were not interested in violence against men. Okay. And they don't want any of their counsellors yeah. discussing it. And he'd been saying, look, I see plenty of couples where the men, the man and the woman will say, I struggle with dealing without conflict, without hitting him. And yeah. I don't want to be like that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this what you're describing is kind of a council culture, I guess. And you can see that in many areas. This is your area of expertise, but you can, you, you can well, I think many people will recognize the, the kind of happenings here in, in other fields yeah. as well. Uh, and what you just said answered the question that I was going to ask about the, 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 the proportion of, uh, yeah, the, the, viol the level of violence and why, why, why it's probably more serious when, when, when the men actually hit than when the woman does it. Yeah. So but you know, women that, are very good at throwing things. Throwing you know, things we've got, yeah. we've got yeah. figures in Australia on men and women turning up in emergency wards, and yeah. you, you have just as many men turning up injured as you do women. Mm -hmm. But that Is doesn't that come out. Yeah. No, that never you know, comes. And it, maybe it's a bit embarrassing, a, a bit embarrassing oh, yeah. for for men, and it's almost stigmatizing to talk about these yeah. things. So to they and don't want to describe themselves call, as victims. Victims, and if they call the police, the, the police tell them to man up. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. you're a six foot two bloke. What are you doing? Mm. Well, how That's can, you, how can you claim that this little woman is attacking you? Mm. I mean, I've talked to so many men in that situation. Often the issue is the children, and mm. men, men, men quite rightly are nervous of their physical strength. They don't want to get into a physical fight with their partner, so they'll restrain themselves and restrain themselves, even if she's you know, hitting them over the head with a frying pan or whatever it is. Um, I mean, I've seen photos of men with, you know, nails raked down their faces or attacked with knives or whatever it is, and they just take it and take it and take it, and then sometimes they might retaliate. But mm -hmm. they will stay there for the sake of the children. I mean, that's, that's the really interesting position we've reached in our society now is that whereas once... Women were stuck in relationships because they had nowhere to go. You know, they couldn't escape a violent man. They couldn't escape a, a philandering man. You know, they had to put up or shut up. Men are now in that situation because they know if they leave, they'll lose their children. Oh. If, if they call the police, the chances are the ch police will believe her and they won't see their children for years on end. And they'll lose, well, you know, the jokes about men giving away houses. I mean, it's, it's actually not a joke about divorced men losing a huge proportion of their assets through divorce. Mm -hmm. And let alone the, the legal battles that can take enormous amount of their assets mm -hmm. just through paying lawyers. I mean, it, it, they're on a hiding to nothing if they stand up and say, I'm leaving I want to still see my children. Uh, you're a violent woman. I, want... I mean, I've, I've done interviews with men in that circumstance and they, they will hang in for grim death rather than take that risk. It's, it's tragic. And not only the other classic area, of course, we haven't really got onto sex, but I mean, men will cope with no sex in their marriages for 20 or 30 years rather than risk losing their children. And it's the most nope, extraordinary yeah. We'll talk about sex soon. That's the other area that I've spent yes, a lot of time on. Uh, 
finish this topic by asking yeah. about something that that many debaters say and they not only feminists i read just today in this in the paper here in stockholm a danish famous danish uh, writer uh, saying the same thing that that one thing that men don't understand is that women are afraid almost all the time that's something that you hear often uh constantly afraid maybe it is that women remember instances of of violence more clearly because they are afraid or is it do you don't you do you even believe that i don't agree with that at all women are more afraid than men when they're walking in the streets when they're i mean i mean regardless of whether it's relevant or not to be afraid they they might be that they might think that they're going to be uh attacked or raped or whatever which of course is is i mean particularly in I would have thought countries like Australia and Sweden, the chances of actually being attacked in the streets, thank goodness, are still pretty low. Yeah. Uh, yet, I mean, I think it's probably true that women are more likely to be nervous in that situation than men are. And yet, of course, men are much more likely to be attacked, mm. much more likely to subject. Not, not, not raped, though. No, 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 that's right. But murdered, yes, yeah. absolutely. Uh, there are violent usually men, unfortunately, in, in our society who um, will attack random strangers on the streets. And, I mean, we're seeing increasing numbers of women doing that, young women. We've seen a real trend in Australia towards gangs of violent women. But um, women are smaller. Women are, you know, there's a natural fear in women, but I don't believe it's something that rules most women's lives. Okay. Uh, we just, you know, it means if we're going into a, an empty car park at night, we will be cautious. Yeah. But there are plenty of situations where men are cautious too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I spent five years living in New York, and believe me, men, and this was in the 1980s, men and women rightly took precautions about where they walked at night. Yeah, and it's yeah. just nonsense to suggest this never applies to men. Do you think that women are portrayed, women in our society, Western societies, are per- portrayed as weaker than they actually are? Absolutely. We, and whose fault is that? Uh, it's the, the, the wimpy, fourth-wave feminists. I mean, for heaven's sake, us second-wave feminists fought for the right to, for, to be strong, powerful women and not to be chaperones and to be seen as taking our place alongside men and not always up on a pedestal and getting special treatment. I mean... It is the, one of the most depressing aspects of my life, watching women wimp out and demanding mm. special treatment in mm. all sorts of situations and demanding to be treated like victims and protected by men. I forget over it, women. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I just find it really offensive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, good answer there. Um, uh, well, it gives me something and, to you think know, about. And that my mother's a... You know, I know so many women who feel like this. I mean, I'm this little um, sounding board, I think, for, not only for men. I mean, I get thousands of letters from men, but I'm hearing more and more and more from women who just hate, particularly older women like me, who were once proud feminists, who feel the whole movement has been hijacked now, but okay. something that we don't, by something we don't recognise at all mm. and we, we think is appalling. The way yeah. both men and women are being portrayed now does both genders a real disservice. The whole thing should be about us being equal and having equal opportunities and equal rights. That's the whole. That's that's the, the thing, isn't it? 
So, and walking in each other's yeah. shoes and understanding each other. Exactly. Rather exactly. than front. I mean, this is all about creating division between men and women mm -hmm. and, and fighting for victim status, which is just, mm -hmm. oh, I mean, uh, it's a bit I'm of all to, to, to force women to, to become victims. Time flies and we have to talk about sex, of course, uh, yes. which goes together with everything else that we were talking about. But sex can be such a nice thing. It can be combined with terrible things, but it's often a, a very nice thing. But anyway, I, I, I'm very interested in this, this the issue of, you know, mismatched desire, as you've been talking yeah. about in 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 the. In, in big talks and uh, uh, there's a very popular video where you talk about this on YouTube. And you wrote this book, The Sex Diaries, uh, which came out maybe in the nineties or so, uh, if I'm- Yeah, or, I think it's at least 10 years ago, yeah. At least 10 it years ago, out. okay, so it's in the two, 2000s. Anyway. This is one that, of the best, and let me tell yeah. you about this. This is one of the best ideas I've ever had. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone's always curious about how often other people do it. You know, exactly. we're always wondering, and we rarely have open conversations, even with our close friends, about mm. the sexual frequency. And I thought... Well, well it's sensitive. <laughs> it's but but, but I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to get people to keep diaries about mm. negotiating sex in a marriage? Mm. Um, you know, on any, any day, if you feel like having sex, what do you do? Do you ask for it? Do you just hope for the green light? You know, how do you negotiate that? How does she react? Um, does she reject you? How do you feel? And, and get both of them to write about that. And I ended up, I recruited people through the media and I got 98 couples who kept diaries for up to a year. And I wrote this book called The Sex Diaries, putting together their experiences about negotiating sexual desire in a relationship. And I mean, it was just an it was such a funny time of my life because they'd often write their little diaries, you know, they'd get up at three o'clock in the morning to send it in to me and I'd leap out of bed every day to see what happened last night. You know? yeah. and you'd get his version and then you'd get her version. You think, are they talking about the same relationship? <laughs> it was just wonderful. Mm. And oh, I mean, it, I'll send you a copy. It's a, I, I mean, it was, a, oh, I yeah. think it's a fantastic book because it's full of real and real stories, people's lives. And, but also at the heart of it is this absolute tragedy mm. of sex hung hungry men. I mean, of mm. men more and more. We've got an increasing gap between men mm. and women in terms of sexual desire. And there's been some American researchers tracking that and showing you know, the gap increases. I mean, it's the great jokes about the honeymoon, you know, having more sex in the first year than you do, the, you know, all the... I'm yeah, sure you know the about rest of your life, yeah. And, yeah. But I mean, unfortunately, that's very true. And it's more and more by being driven by women's lack of desire. Mm. I mean, once, if we go back to the 1950s, there was an assumption of, of wifely duty, you know, of women looking after their husbands. That was, that was part of the deal of marriage. And that's mm. just gone out the window. And now we have, um, if women, you know, the feminists, it's been very much part of the feminist campaign uh, to convince women that if they're not interested in sex, it needn't happen. Uh, mm. There's no sexual obligation in marriage at all anymore. Um, and I mean, and what's your a, view on that? What, what, what I, do you say? Absolute that? tragedy. Yeah. I mean, if you went out and asked men and women what's missing for their marriages, 
you'd get the vast majority of marriages, men saying not enough sex or no sex. I mean, I have had men tell me that, you know, they listen to me talking about this on the radio with, and they'd be listening with tears rolling down their cheeks because they'd never heard anybody talk about that in their whole lives before. No one talks about what it's like for a man to feel like a beggar, to grovel for sex, to feel there's something wrong with them, to ask their wife to make love to them. I mean, the, the, the experiences of men in talking about this just wrung me out. Um, mm, mm. And, and so many women, I was once giving a talk about this to a group of lawyers and a woman came up to me afterwards and said she was sitting with her husband and I was talking about all of this and she said she looked at him and he had tears in his eyes and he reached for a glass of water and, you know, quickly drank it down. She'd never in her whole marriage seen him cry before. And they, yeah, and it was just this sense of someone talking about his heartache and spending his life being constantly rejected. Mm, It's a grief. Uh, And and women talk ad nauseum about their wants and needs and why aren't men doing this and why aren't men talking to us more and why aren't men doing more housework. And, And this is the number one thing men longed for in their long-term relationships is to feel wanted and desired and to feel like a man and we want to say fooey i'm not if i'm not interested in sex so you're not going to get any i mean for heaven's sake how is this possible yeah well you have what is very compelling and what resonates with me since i'm a man and i recognize a lot of what you're writing about here and and uh, explaining is that men have this you might call it eternal flame or you can say the the constant itch if you want to be more down to earth while women as far as i can understand and i can see it in 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 my life myself uh, that it might be like this they can kind of turn their shut down their sexuality completely during periods in their life and they can turn it on again if they want periodically but it's like why if they want for for, yeah if they want but for a man it's not really possible uh, and i I'm not a biologist, but I guess it has to do with the testosterone uh, yeah. because it's, it's, it's always there in a way. And, and it's, it's very, I mean, sometimes I wish it weren't because it would be so oh, much easier. The uh, monkey on your back. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So is it the oh, testosterone or, 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 or is it something I think else? It's, I think it is testosterone. I think there's a real biological difference there. Yeah. And uh, I mean, uh, you know, it's complex, the biology. It's a mixture of now it's there's, of course, this huge cultural component telling women that it's fine not to be interested. I mean, you know, this question of what it was like in the 1950s, where we assume women suffered through a lot of unwanted sex. But maybe if you had a different expectation, because one other thing, maybe if you expect to have to have sex, if you like, mm-hmm. and you assume, well, you might as well try to enjoy it. Many women would end up enjoying it. This is one of the theories I play with in my book, which got me into enormous trouble. Oh, the, the canoe theory. Just, yeah. Just, you put the canoe in the water and start paddling, and yeah. then desire often kicks in. I mean, there's a, 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 a professor in Canada who did research on women who had no desire for an awfully long time, and they find she found that there are many women who have no desire but can still enjoy sex if you put that canoe in and start mm. paddling. 
so you need that. You need to be with a, a lover who knows how to please you. Obviously, you're not going to enjoy sex unless, you know, you have the, all the ingredients there. But also you have, a will, have to have the willingness to be receptive. Put some you have in. to know, you know, you know in your head, I may not feel like it now, but I know once I get going, I'll really enjoy it. Mm. And, and, so, and once you've and tried it, that, you might, you might remember afterwards and realize yeah. that this is, this is going to that's work. Right. If I do, yeah. And that's the just do it idea. And yeah. many said to me, they know that, you know, they have to overcome their resistance and think, oh, I'm too tired. I can't be bothered. I'd rather watch television yeah. um, and think, no, I will. In it's not for him. I mean, it's not, there's nothing wrong with having sex for him, but it's also for her to say, I enjoy sexual pleasure. I enjoy the intimacy. I enjoy all the good stuff that comes from making love to the man you love. I mean, why wouldn't I want that? And I, every time I have it, I think, why don't we do this more often? Mm. Uh, but women could go for years having no sexual desire. It's very yeah. common. And when and it awakens again, they're, su they're surprised that th they had it I know. oftentimes. Yeah. Oh, look, it, the really whole area is so complex yeah. and individual, but we're now imposing, I think, cultural changes on people's expectations around desire, which are really destructive to relationships. Mm -hmm. And that's what really bothers me. Well, the right to say no, for women to, to say no, was, of course, extremely important when it was put forward in the 60s Absolutely. or 70s, as, I mean, as, you, as you, you know, say, as you point out. But right. maybe do you, yeah. would you say that this, the right to say no has been interpreted too literally, in a sense? Oh, absolutely. I mean, of course, women have a right to say no, but I think they have to realize there are very good reasons for saying yes, other than that, than that initial desire, because of mm -hmm. the fact that, as I say, many women might find they, they enjoy it once they get going. Plus, it's really good for the relationship. It's really bad for the relationship to go for years with no sex. I mean, mm -hmm. men don't want to live with a sister or a roommate, mm -hmm. you know, if you get married or if you're in a long-term relationship, you want a lover. And mm. I mean, they're living with extremely unhappy men if they impose that regime on a man. And, you know, and it introduces all sorts of poison in the relationship. Mm. Uh, and I think it, it's a real tragedy that we're not even allowed to talk about this very often. If you, well, if, if you Google me, you'll find all these articles sneering at me for telling men, you know, for... There's there's a blogs talking about me as a rape cheerleader, and that's the idea that I'm saying you know mm. men go home and rape your wives. And of course, mm. obviously, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying not. that that's women ridiculous. have to think about why they might want to say yes a little bit more often. Of course, mm. they have a right to say no, but I don't think that's in their interests either. No, to say course. no all um, the time. Yeah, well, it's it's easy to say the to to to, to drive the the idea of the right to say no than the the duty or the, the the obligation in a loving relationship to sometimes maybe say yes that's that's a little bit more difficult to and i also, I also don't think it see there is this idea now in our culture that sex is something so precious and different from any other aspect of life so you know you cook meatballs for him and you don't mm. like meatballs but you know you know they're his favorite dish so you do it for him i mean we mm. do lots of things men don't want to climb up on roofs and get leaves out of the gutter or go out and sweep the snow from the you know lots of stuff we do for each other isn't mm. much fun mm. uh this happens to be something which can be enormous fun what if we mm. if you get into it 
But it's not, I mean, I think lots of women don't see it as divorced from all the other aspects of life where we do negotiate. And they're the ones, women who are sexually generous and know how to look after their husbands but, or their partners, and, but they are becoming rather thin on the ground, sadly. When all these Me Too stories came out, I was, uh, and many men among me were uh, upset, of course. Uh, but in, in most of the cases, and this is where it gets a bit difficult to talk about, actually, but I would do it anyway. In most of the cases, it's, there seemed to be a core element of sexual drive in the groping and whatever these men did uh, that was actually explicable to us, to me and many, many other men. And it, it, it's very difficult to talk about this with, with, with women, women in particular. Decent men condemned the acts, of course. But while we did this, I mean, if I consider myself as a decent man, which, which, I, which I do, but we did this mostly from a moral perspective, if you see what I mean. I mean, we, meaning that those Me Too men, they, they should have, of course, had full, full respect for the other human being and stayed away from, from all forms of sexuality in that, in that situation, in that instance. But many women condemned, the, condemned acts that they didn't understand at all. It, they were completely incomprehensible for, to them. And to be able to understand anything of it, many, many of these women decided that it must have to do with power, you know? It's all about power, they say. And many decent men, they don't say anything to that because perhaps they convince themselves to believe the power theory themselves or they, they don't want to... I mean, they can sense that it would be very difficult for, for them to explain to women what they, what they actually think about this whole situation. Do you see, do you see this uh, in the same way? I, mean, I, I think the whole thing is much more complex than people are pretending. I mean, even the Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein case, every, lots of people seem to have known he was a groper, he was going to try it on with you. Mm. Some women made the choice that it was, they wanted them a part in a movie. It was worth going in there with that man, they didn't have to do that. Uh, this was, the casting couch is a two-way street where, I mean, you could argue that this is an appalling thing for men to buy, use their power to get, gain sexual favours. Well, well, it is, of course. <laughs> of course it is. But yes. it's also, you know, there were some women who made the choice not to go near that man because they didn't want that particular bargain and others who did and others who accepted large amounts of money. to, to They did it and then they... He paid them off. I mean, mm -hmm. there there are aspects of the female participation in this equation that are also really dubious. Mm -hmm. um, I, I agree with you. There, you know, men sometimes been as part of this sort of lusty sexuality. Um, you know, they're sort of masturbating in front of girls, or you mm -hmm. know, pulling mm -hmm. their feet, whatever it is. Pulling. I mean, mm -hmm. some of that is pretty gross sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, a hell of a lot of women have had that sort of experience and said, put it away. You know, no, I'm not interested. I mean, mm. this th sort of experience has been part of women's lives always, that men will try things on, that some men will behave in a particularly obnoxious way, just as some women behave in a pretty obnoxious way in other areas. And once it was assumed that most women would be able to handle that. Mm. I mean... So the, what, what really got me about Me Too was the, this earlier thing we were talking about, the fragility of women. There was a Canadian member of parliament who, say, who said she was traumatised for six months 
after a man, after she was, she was photographed with two other MPs, uh, both male, and she was in the middle. And, and one of the man, men joked, this isn't the sort of threesome I had in mind. Oh. And, and here's yeah. a member of parliament. Yeah. I mean, an adult yeah. woman who puts herself forward as a leader of people claiming she's so fragile that that's true. I mean, what is wrong with people? You know, there are all sorts of aspects of Me Too that really bothered me right from the beginning. I mean, I acknowledge that there have always been men who've misused their power, no question, and it's important to put a stop to that. I, But I believe, I mean, in a place like Australia, we've had sexual harassment legislation in place for decades and decades. Me Too wasn't some new revelation. That's always been out there. We've been battling to deal with the serious issues like this, the you know, the young woman working in a sandwich shop with a male who's molesting her. You know, all of those sort of situations of power have to be addressed, no question. But we had, as to most other countries, a wave of accusations against prominent men. Almost all the cases have failed. Uh, we've had very well-known actors accused of groping women in the middle of a stage play, you know, when he's lifting her in her arms and um, and case after case have fallen down. There's not been evidence. The woman's evidence has been found to have huge holes in it, whatever. So me too well, has then been the a feminists take failure. that as, as, a, as, a, as a, an evidence that the society's patriar patriarchal, that these cases are, are um, shut. No, no, not really. Well, it could also be an argument about that a lot of women have jumped on this bandwagon and they want their 15 minutes of fame. And, and you know, the, the big risk in all of this is there's a punitive element. Any man, we've seen some clear cases of this. I don't know whether you're following some of the feminists, the, the men's rights activists in, in Canada. Janice Fiamengo is, is one of them. Um, uh, and Diane Davison, they've been, they're working with helping men who are being wrongly accused in Canada. And mm. there's been some big cases in Canada uh, of uh, similar to Australia, where the woman has been proved to have manufactured uh, accusations. And often it's because the man has done something to annoy them. If you have a boss who turned you down for a promotion or who didn't think your work was up to scratch or whatever it is. Any man, is a powerful man, is now vulnerable to false allegations. And we have seen a wave of that in Australia recently. Uh, historic cases emerging, um, which are dubious in various ways, and yet absolutely destroying the man's reputation. And I, mm. I'd be very nervous if I was a man who'd employed lots of women for you know over the last few decades, because anything could be misconstrued, any allegation could be used to absolutely. I, I know many of my friends are talking, talking about talking about that. Actually, I mean, not not they're not truly afraid that something's going to happen, but it comes up sometimes when I talk freely with with close friends that oh, we might not do that or say that to these women or. We're acting that way because I mean, who knows what's going to happen? The kind of well, I mean, kinds of accusations you might, but I think it's. I mean, the problem is not really big if you're if you're just a, a, an honest and decent and loving person no. who meets 
Listen, people will respect and my mother's sons will say nothing they all assume nothing could ever happen have happened to their son because mm. they were good men decent men they behave well you any man could be falsely accused believe me i hope people will go and have a look at that website it's mothersofsons.info yeah. um, and read the stories of these mothers of what happened to those men you could have an allegation that has absolutely no foundation particularly in the context of a family law battle and 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 she will almost always be believed and he will be disbelieved we were about to do a a video with a woman whose son is in prison as a result of false allegations made by the children and part of the evidence in that case was one of the children saying mummy told us to say that um, all sorts of aspects of the case didn't stack up. You know, there were things that... What, so one judge decided there was nothing in it and he was, the man was let out of prison and then there were new accusations made and he went back into prison again. I mean, it's a lottery, our justice yeah. system now. So we'll have to... We men, we so have don't to walk on, on, walk on eggshells. Men, men listening to this, don't believe you will be safe by behaving well. That is okay. not true. And I'm just absolutely ashamed of women, the behaviour of women. And I think there are a lot of women. Some women, you have to add. A lot, no, I, I mean, not all, of course not all women. I, I, mean, I have I mean, you're working women. But I've been just absolutely appalled at how many false allegations are being made mm. and how commonplace it's become. Um, but maybe our, it's a self self fulfilling prophecy in a way, self playing piano, as we say in Swedish. It's, it it started in the eighties, seventies, eighties, nineties, and now it's just difficult to stop this whole this whole process. And maybe I mean, these women that you're you're appalled by their acts and their 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 actions, they believe that what they're doing is the right thing. I I, I assume. It's interesting. I'm not going back to my college students, my university students who've been accused. Um, I mean, there's been a number of cases where the woman initially has said nothing happened, you know, that, where they've been caught. There's one case in particular where they were caught in a compromising situation where she'd been very drunk. He, he had helped with a group of students put this girl to bed. Um, and then he was still in, in this accommodation when she sort of came to and woke up and, and started, she said, he says, started to seduce him. They were, you know, half, un, he, she, you know, undressing him and then everyone came back in. And the girl said nothing happened until and one of her friends who uh, influenced her. She, so she changed her story a number of times from saying mm. there was no problem, no sexual assault, nothing, to saying, eventually saying he, he sexually assaulted her. I mean, the, in this sort of situation, we now have people who are have ideological agendas, and you can have perfectly innocent girls who don't see anything wrong as having happened, who end up getting caught up in the victim, the business of being a victim, and making an accusation against the man. Uh, it's just shocking. Mm. Is it fair to say that that you have made a journey from being a vocal feminist to being a vocal masculist? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> no Is that a term about that? That, that, that you can use? Uh, no, I usually say 
I don't even talk about men's rights. I talk about men's issues that I'm, interest mm. me because it, it's not necessarily about rights. It's about because um, it's also about children's rights. I mean, the, how I really got involved in men's rights was through um, advocating on behalf of children who weren't seeing their fathers. That's that mm. was the, the major shift for me, realizing the appalling statistics on how few children have a decent relationship with their fathers after divorce. It's, it's a real tragedy. And, mm. you know, the research on the impact of children on children and missing out of that, on that, you know, care by fathers is, is really solid. Um, most children benefit from having a, um, a father in their lives and we're doing them a huge disservice in mm. allowing so many families to, so many single children to grow up in single mother families uh, and dad's being pushed out of that family. How so do you that, define, that's what led to it. Mm. How do you define feminism? Do, do you call yourself a feminist these days? Not anymore. I remember, okay. you know, I, I made a decision at some point, enough. Feminism is no longer what I believe in. The connotations are too too far away from what, what you believe. Yeah, but I mean, you can, you can, I, I guess I you can define, yeah, you can define feminism that way. I, feminism is not about equality now. Isn't it? Okay. Well, no, it's, it's I, really I, I call myself a feminist, but my definition is, uh, it's not radical. It's, it's more like, you know, we should all have equal rights and equal opportunities. And the, the, there is, there has been a, a um, unfairness towards women in history in our society. And we have to get rid of that. But other than that, we should have all the same opportunities and the same rights. And that's, that makes me want to call myself a feminist, but maybe, your connotation is a bit different. Yeah, but, but you know, I, I object to the constant distortion of research, of statistics, of the whole cultural dialogue to present the image of women as constantly disadvantaged and men as always privileged. I've just written an article this week about our taxation system because one of our I would call them left-leaning woke institutions has just published a study claiming that, uh, you know, men get all the benefits from, from the tax concessions and, you know, women don't, and that men come out twice as well as women do. And if you look, I then happened to dig, I was digging around on our tax, you know, official taxation officer's um, website, and I found this wonderful graph which shows that we have, what, do you have superannuation in in Sweden? What we call, you know, it's like compulsory savings. The government require, takes some of our money uh, as throughout our, our working lives, which they save for our old age. That's called superannuation. Um, it's like the retire retirement system, or like a retirement benefit system, and and that you know, women end up with much smaller levels of superannuation than the men do because they work in Australia we have had a very traditional society where most women still want to look after their own children when they're young and they tend to work part-time particularly yeah. in those early years and then they actually don't you know mo uh, you know uh, a quarter of women retire again by 45 so they're working mm. very short periods of their lives even if they go back into the full-time workforce after having children they pull out again pretty quickly and yeah. men tend to work all their lives in full-time work. It's pretty unusual for men to work part-time for long periods. And 
they earn much more money over their lifetime as a result. And they end up with more of these retirement savings. And this was presented as, you know, men ripping women off. And it was such a nonsense because it's so divisive to present an issue like that in those terms. Most marriages are about, or most relationships are about men and women contributing to, in their own ways, to running this family. And women in our country often choosing to, you know, to work part-time for long periods, men, men having to therefore often be stuck in jobs they don't like, sometimes for decade after decade, in order to support their families. But it's about mutual benefit and, hmm. and pulling but together. But shouldn't the, the fact that the women, the women take care of children, which is such an important task should be that shouldn't be cast economically castigated i mean it should be no but the point is this statistically this graph i found showed that women end up with the same money as men do and no one had ever talked about that in australia and the reason they do is this is they are the named beneficiaries of this Mm. retirement benefit so the the men when they die they leave the money to the women and the women get that money Mm -hmm. or else they divorce and that is part of the the pool of money that's divided between men and women. So women come up, particularly high income, uh, women married to high income earning men get a big hunk of that, what we call superannuation as well. So they do get, I mean, this is not his money versus her money. This is our mutual money for our mutual benefit. Women in Australia are, you know, there's plenty of research showing that they make most of the decisions about spending the money. This is not his money. It's being spent on the family. And she's actually doing most of the decision making. So to say, oh, it's not fair that she has this little tiny pool of money in this marriage. It's just a nonsense argument. And it's divisive. And it's, you know, implying that women are badly done by. Mm, And in fact, women end up with just as much money as men do. And no one talks about that. Fascinating. I think we are going to wrap wrap this up in a a little while here. I know that you've done some very interesting interviews with Jordan B. Peterson also. Yeah. Watched at least one of them. I think it's several, is it? You have, uh, uh, well, I no, I I really only did one. We divided that up into two bits. Okay, yeah, yeah. I saw, but I saw one long interview. He was out in Australia now, early in his fame, his rise yeah, to fame. Yeah, yeah. And I was MC <laughs> for two of his events, which was just amazing. This huge audience of mainly men, yeah. you know, um, yeah. flocking to see their hero. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean. It was an extraordinary experience. And, and well, um, I was yeah. thinking that maybe, I mean, you were famous before he was. So was maybe famous. you could say that Jordan B. Peterson is the, is a male version of Bettina Arndt. Oh, no, well, I think he got a real shock because most people are very deferential to him and mm. ask him lots of questions and then sit back for the answers. And, and I was having more of a conversation with him because yeah. we were talking about a lot of things I, I mean, I've been working with for years and I know a lot about. So, yeah, and I actually yeah. got him to talk. He he made a very strong statement in that interview with me about there, sh- there being an obligation to have sex in a marriage. So mm, yeah, uh, I, I pushed him on issues he hadn't been pushed on before, which was quite fun. Yeah, he, he's an interesting person. I, I don't always agree with with what he says, but he's very intelligent and and to the point. But he's, I mean, compared to you, he's a bit more, I don't know, he's a bit gloomy and a bit not, oh, he's very, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't seem very happy. And he's not, he's oh. not oozing love. 
out in his no, life. I know. I know, you know, so it, I mean, it's very, look, very technical you know, and very academical. He, and, and, and he, and he, look, he struggled with depression. I mean, he is a, I know, yeah. You know, he's always said that. Whereas I'm, I'm, the trouble with me is I'm an eternal optimist. Yeah, but that's I wonderful. Was, I know, well, you know, and I, it was fun when I was out there preaching, telling everybody to go and enjoy sex. It's much harder now. I mean, I find it very depressing that I have to go out and talk about these, what are really grim topics of what's mm. happening to men mm. when I'd mm. much rather be entertaining people with jokes about sex but this has become much more important to me yeah but you you, you will uh, make a difference uh, hopefully and that will that can perhaps make you make you happy to think about that oh no i'm happy i'm happy anyway in it, i can't yeah, help happy being happy anyway. so that's a good way to be <laughs> that's that's wonderful i love it so tina aren't or bettina aren't <laughs> i know you you're called tina among yeah. your friends um So where can people find find your work? You mentioned this website, Mothers of Sons. Yes, but also probably first at my, at my own website. Just look yeah. up Bettina Arndt. And that's a good German name, Arndt, A-R-N-D-T. Bettina, yes. A-R-N-D-T dot com, is it? And it's Bettina, yeah, Bettina Arndt dot com. But there's only one Bettina Arndt in Australia, that's for sure. <laughs> They wouldn't want another one. Um, <laughs> and... Um, And then mothersofsons.info is the, the website of the mothers. .info, okay. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. And, uh, and yeah, and that's, so I'm devoting a lot of time to that new project now. We, we had hoped that getting mothers to go out there and talk about this issue would attract media attention. I mean, these are women. You're supposed to believe women. But the mainstream media is just not interested. Because they're talking about from other fields, yeah. There, there's always yeah. uh, an, an agenda, or there's, a, yeah, yeah, there are blinkers, you know. So yeah, yeah. anyway, thanks so well, much. It's been lovely talking to you. Yeah. To, for joining the show, and it's yeah, it's it's been incredibly interesting and 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 uh, and wonderful. So good. good luck out there on the gender barricades. <laughs> Thank you so much.